and welcome to the Wealth Core Supplies CAODC podcast for July 2020. I'm John Bacon. We've got two great interviews for you this month, so I'm not going to waste any of your time with my ramblings, and we're going to get into it uh, straight away. Our first interview is with University of Alberta students Dan Baker and Sky Libert, who took it upon themselves to pen a letter to Prime Minister Trudeau in support of Canada's oil and gas industry. It's a very effective letter, and they are currently looking for signatures from all Canadians to add to theirs before they send it to the PMO. We're going to talk to them about why they felt compelled to write the letter and how people can sign it before it gets sent off. Then we chat with Stuart Muir, Executive Director of Resource Works out of British Columbia. Mr. Muir is a very well-spoken advocate of all resource industries in Canada, and he's organized a task force for real jobs, real recovery. We asked Stuart about the rationale behind the task force and why it's so important for Canada, given all the spending and complications that COVID has brought to an already hard-hit resource sector. It's an important initiative because it comes at a time when many Canadians, including several leaders, are looking beyond the value of the industries that essentially built our country. In particular, since well before the pandemic, Canadian oil and gas has been under significant attack with misinformation campaigns and subsequent poor policy, leading to a public backlash and huge delays for essential infrastructure projects. And of course, all of this comes at the expense of both those who support and oppose oil and gas. And most importantly, it leaves us weak at a time when our country needs us most. So let's get right to it. Our industry update is brought to you by CAODC Rig Data. CAODC Rig Data is the most accurate and up-to-date data on the Canadian drilling and service rig sector. If you'd like more information on how to access CAODC Rig Data, check out our website at caodc.ca. On the drilling side, in June we had only 437 operating days compared with 3,129 in June of 2019 for a decrease of 86% year over year. Active rigs for the month averaged 17, down from 129 in 2019, for a decrease of 19,600 jobs year over year. Our registered drilling fleet is now 506, down six from last month. And at this time last year, we had 547 registered rigs. Provincially, in June, Alberta averaged 65% of active rigs again, and BC had 35%, with Saskatchewan and Manitoba seeing no activity. In 2019, Alberta had 50% of active rigs, Saskatchewan 26%, BC 6%, and Manitoba 2%. 2019 numbers are obviously a much more normal distribution and far more reflective of what is typically happening at the end of Q2 in a normal year. Again, we have set record lows for monthly activity with scarcely any activity in June. The issues impacting our industry are well known, but according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, or the EIA, the extent of the demand destruction and supply glut isn't as bad as initially predicted, which is great to hear, especially at this point in time. Um, According to their July 7th report, after early increases in inventory to the tune of about 1.3 billion barrels, the markets have now shifted and consumption in June was up 10 million barrels per day from April levels, with the oversupply gone and demand now drawing from inventories again. 
EIA is now expecting a steady decline in inventories at a rate of 1.8 million barrels per day through the end of 21. That's 2021. So for the remainder of this year, they are expecting total consumption to average 92.9 million barrels per day, down 8.1 million from 2019, but not too far off, really, given all that has gone on. Um, numbers like these with the extraordinary circumstances we have seen this year are a clear indication, in my humble opinion, of the huge demand for oil and gas worldwide. I mean, we've seen, you know, unprecedented, it's far overused, but we've seen an unprecedented uh, demand destruction and supply glut, and we're still at 92 million barrels per day. So oil and gas uh, doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Um, as of today, which is July 20, uh, we have 39 active rigs running. No, hang on, let me double check that. I think that has popped a little bit since this morning as the reports come in. So as it stands, we are looking at 42 active rigs. So this is excellent. I mean, this is a huge pop month over month um, and hopefully a sign of things to come. On the service side, operating hours in June were down 44% over 2019 totals. June of this year, we saw 34,960 operating hours versus 78,627 in 2019, a decrease of 43,667. Month over month, we had 20,628 hours in May of 2020, so we're up uh, 14,154 hours or 69%, which is a nice little bump. The working rig count in June was 265, uh, up from 180 last month, or, or in May, rather. Uh, but that is down from a uh, working rig count of 425 in June of 2019. So, ladies and gentlemen, the numbers uh, are not good, but keep in mind these are lagging indicators. We've had a lot of questions about the various site rehabilitation programs recently on the service side, as members are starting to receive the status of applications submitted in BC, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. Uh, we've heard things have rolled out fairly smoothly in both BC and Saskatchewan, and that the first two tranches in Alberta were a little bit clunky. Uh, from what I understand, Alberta will be focusing on downhole work in the third tranche, as well as reviewing applications from tranche one in what they are calling tranche 1B. So if you are a service rig member, you've been getting regular updates from us when we receive information on all of these uh, programs and we will continue to keep you posted as soon as we receive any news. All right, that is it for the industry update for July 2020. Our industry update, as always, is brought to you by CAODC Rig Data. CAODC Rig Data is the most accurate and up-to-date data on the Canadian drilling and service rig sector. If you'd like more information on how to access CAODC rig data, check out our website at caodc.ca. Okay, please stick around because after the break, we have University of Alberta students Dan Baker and Sky Libert. WealthCore is proud to support those who are working hard to keep our country running. Proud to be a Canadian-owned welding filler metal supply company in a country that has the highest environmental and human rights standards in the world. WeldCore supports ethical oil. WeldCore supports the Canadian oil and gas sector. The world needs ethical oil. The world needs Canadian oil. 
Let WeldCore Supplies help you make that happen. All right, welcome back. Joining us first on the WeldCore Supplies CAODC podcast, we are happy to have Sky Libert and Daniel Baker, two University of Alberta master's degree students who recently penned a letter in support of Canada's oil and gas industry to Prime Minister Trudeau. Thank you for joining us, gentlemen. Thanks for having us, John. Yeah, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about your backgrounds? Are you guys both from Alberta originally or? Yeah, so I'm from Calgary, Alberta, born and raised, and then went up to the University of Alberta to begin my um, undergrad education in geology. So I completed that, got a BSc, honors BSc in geology from the University of Alberta, worked for a year for a couple oil companies and construction companies. And then once I was done uh, playing around with the jackhammer, I decided to go back to get a master's degree in geology at the University of Alberta. And so now I'm yeah. working on the Duvernay Formation and Ichnological uh, facies associations and sedimentary sedimentary uh, facies associations as well. Yeah, I uh, grew up in uh, just outside of Edmonton here in Spruce Grove, and yeah, so just northern or central Alberta there, and. I went to school, um, did my master's or did my undergrad at the University of Alberta there. Um, same thing as Daniel, did honors in geology, my undergrad. And then right after I finished up my undergrad, I, I knew in my last year of my undergrad of what I wanted to pursue and continue um, going down the research path and um, doing my master's. And so that's where I'm doing my master's uh currently there at the u of a uh with daniel and my master's is uh specifically on doing like a geological um geostatistical analysis of the lean zone so like high water saturated zones within the manville so that's uh, as of what we know of today as the oil sands um where majority of the oil sands come from and so um yeah and so it's just the high water saturated zones in there excellent well gentlemen i was very impressed when i read your letter and and i must say you know a letter of this type isn't one we typically see written by students from universities in north america so i guess the first question is what prompted you to write it we were actually sitting we shared office space and we were sitting around and we we got we saw that a letter came out from the University of Alberta uh, University of Alberta professors and that 265 university professors signed it a letter towards Trudeau asking him not to support oil and gas development during covid and we kind of just looked at each other and we were just this is ridiculous. We're tired of the polarized, one-sided argument that Canadian energy is bad, specifically with oil and gas. And we're, we understood how much and how much effort oil and gas companies put towards environmental action and help support Canadians. 
through our industry work and we were just tired of it and we just get, we got to write a letter. We're going to showcase a more positive and optimistic viewpoint that can show that oil and gas within Canada is not bad, but actually a benefit to all Canadians. And that's where we just kind of drew the line and shot a letter out. Yeah. It, it, we just didn't find that within like the popular media that seems to have been very one-sided and quite a bit of misleading information. So yeah, when that letter came out, we just, yeah, just knew we had to do something about it because it didn't reflect the majority of Canadians. And like, we often like to say it's like the soft, what we call is like a soft spoken majority um, that are in support of our proud energy sector, which we like never hear of that side. And so, yeah, that's when me and Dan looked at each other and we we're like, we, we need to do something and um, stand up for this industry that um, not being, that is being poorly represented in the media. And that mm -hmm. tied in really well with joining Students for Canada. So that's the student organization that we're a part of now. And we are, Students for Canada is a non-Protestant, non-industry and all volunteer. And we support res, uh, responsible resource projects which respect Canadian values, economic prosperity and environmental stability. And we are frustrated with the lack of balance between oil and gas production as long, along with climate action. And this is where our letter really highlights is we can have both climate action alongside oil and gas development, which gives economic prosperity to Canada. Mm -hmm. So for our listeners who haven't read the letter, um, they make quite a few points. Um, just the, the quick overview here, they, they talk a little bit about the increasing global demand for energy, um, Canada's environmental record when it comes to producing hydrocarbons, the amount of environmental innovations that come from oil and gas, and they mentioned COSIA in there. Uh, they talk a lot about opportunities for First Nations partnerships within the industry. And then, of course, uh, LNG and coal and the fact that LNG has, of course, a uh, much less of an environmental footprint than coal, but that all energy at the end of the day has an environmental cost. So quickly for our listeners uh, who haven't read your letter, is it available anywhere online or? Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. You can go, Sky. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, we have it online at studentsforcanada.ca. So all together with .ca at the end. And you'd be able to find our letter. And um, we're inviting all Canadians because this really affects everyone, um, not just the energy industry. It goes, you know, affects your education, affects your health. It affects all your public services um, all across the board. And so it's, it, it really affects everyone. So we're just inviting everyone to sign. And like, if you haven't read it and haven't signed it yet, um, you can find it at that website. All right. And specifically go to projects. And there's also more projects that Students for Canada is working towards. So Canadians talking to Canadians for having joint conversations. So that's a really good thing to look up. And then someone's working on a divestment discussions. Oh, okay. Yep. So that's just where we can find our letter and then also more Students for Canada projects that are ongoing. 
Yeah. So speaking of those conversations, I'm really curious, with, with people in your age group, how would you describe the overall support for resource industries um, in general? You can take uh, this one, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you like here at the U of A, it, we're we're around kind of the whole industry because it's just Western Canada. Um, but what I found when I was talking to other students at the U of A, I would say about sixteen out of twenty students were in support of Canadian Energy. And like I, I didn't really believe it like when i started walking around and started talking to students hey would you like you know we had some stickers about supporting canadian energy would you like one and yeah 16 said yeah no problem and they're all for it and then the other four two were kind of like undecided they weren't too sure how to respond or weren't quite sure about it and then the other two it was a pretty hard no um out of the four students that um, oh, the 20. And so what we found is like that kind of, that line quite a bit with what we're seeing with like overall of like what Canadians view from the polls that we've mentioned within our letter um, that support the industry. But um, some of the viewpoints of those who weren't or in supportive of Canadian energy, um, a lot of it was like the lack of knowledge I found when I was talking to them about the industry or those who were undecided that they weren't a hundred percent sure what was going on. Um, the, like the two that were, like a complete hard no. They like, they, um, I asked them why and they kind of just shrugged their shoulders and they give me a blank stare and like, look at me as like, what do you mean? Because right. just like everything we see in the media is, quite negative um towards the industry and so they were kind of surprised like why i was kind of supporting why i was supporting oil and gas and um, that whole resource sector side of things and um i think when i was like talking to them towards the end it came out to being a positive conversation like i was able to understand their side and everything and they're able to understand wow we actually do have standards here um, they, they didn't realize, um, all the procedures, all the like risk assessments, environmental risk assessments, they didn't realize we did all those things. And it's like, I feel like a lot of like all the environmental and technological and like innovation and like standards we have has been quite like suppressed or like pushed under the rug where we don't really hear much about it in the media. And yeah. so people aren't aware like, for example, like the COSIA, um, the NRG COSIA Carbon X Prize, that's a $20 million multi-year international competition um, that was launched here in Canada. And the whole purpose was that it was like these industries, these oil sand companies saw a problem and what they want to do is come up with solutions for it. And so they made this global and internal international com uh, competition where you turn CO2 emissions into everyday usable products. And that's like, people don't know that. And when you like tell students is, and this was started back in 2015 before the whole climate action thing started to become popular over the last year or so. And so it's like, 
that these companies are smart. They, they have scientists and people who, who see these problems and they want to come up with solutions. And I think that's something that is missing from the narrative is these companies are trying to do something about it, but they're kind of like the silent unsung heroes you don't hear about um, with these achievements that they have. And like, that's just one thing. There's like so many other things we can talk about, but like, that's an example of one thing you, you just don't really hear about in the news. Well, and that dovetails into my next question, which is energy literacy and how you would describe that among your peer group as well. And so, I mean, you just talked a lot about the technology and that probably isn't quite as well known as, as you mentioned, but what about just the uh, energy usage in general, where it comes from, the trade-offs that you have to make for it, how things are made? How would you assess that uh, sort of with people among your peer group? We have one Students for Canada member that joined at the beginning of Students for Canada, and he was saying, with, with regards to energy literacy, that he was calling the oil sands the tar sands. And he was from, I believe, Lethbridge. Is that right, Sky? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And as soon as he jumped into Students for Canada, we he was being he was able to be educated towards understanding energy literacy and where it comes from and how it's used. So now he's a full supporter for teaching others about energy literacy and about how oil and gas specifically, and I believe some other energy. Uh, uses are used within Canada and he's using this as a work term to become a social teacher and to allow more a better understanding and energy literacy of Canadians energy sector Mm -hmm. and I from our conversations he thinks that energy literacy and how oil and gas is used isn't really well depicted within schools especially junior high and lower grades. And you kind of need to be thrown into the thick of it as Sky and I were uh, working for oil companies and also gold mining companies. Well, a company we worked once and it was really cool. (laughs) (laughs) And you have to be kind of involved with it to understand how much oil and gas does for Canada. And without being in the thick of it, I don't think it's very well verbalized or directly understood. Yeah. 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 I I like to add on to that. Like with our, with schools, I think there needs to be much more of that energy literacy and like much more understanding regarding how or what products, like everything has a cost, everything we do, um, you know, and I think there needs to be uh, more of that understanding because everything has its place. Like your windmills have a place, your oil and gas has its place. And I think people don't really understand where the places are for that. And like, what are the problems that, um, that come or arise or what are the solutions that are being talked about? And I think um, that there needs to be, and that needs to be more open discussion and like um, fact driven conversation about this with our generation. That's like the awesome thing about SFC is um, like, it's such an inclusive atmosphere. Like we have students in um, kinesiology, all students all the way in nursing, dental students. We have 
um, biology. We have um, PhD students in um, the climate sciences or in the climate change sciences, um, geology, earth sciences. Like we have all these students from all these different backgrounds um, coming together and having these open conversations. It, it's a pretty inclusive atmosphere and just trying to come up with solutions. That's that's the thing. That's the whole the whole idea behind it. Well, that's excellent. Um, Daniel, you touched on it there uh, as far as the, the tar sands term and, and kind of the uh, derogatory language that surrounds the oil and gas industry and the media. And I really thought that was excellent that you guys actually brought that up in your letter to the prime minister. Um, and I see actually that there's been a few studies recently about it. Why did you feel it was important? Um, to include that and and just maybe your thoughts on how our industry is described <clears throat> so i thought that was important to bring across because you i've never really heard about it within articles that the usage of words around oil and gas industry is polarizing in gridlocks and until we ran across the one article mentioned within our letter and a university of alberta professor was stating that words have meaning and based on this polarized message of using these words such as Tarzans, which is an incorrect term, really divides Canada and just grinds everything to a halt where you have people that are scared and it's not really working. And even with the other side too, that the use of war, that's a not there's it's just so loaded that you're either using it as an aggressive act for climate activists saying we're waging war against oil sands and that they're not doing everything in their power or people within the oil industry are tired of being villainized and criticized for what they don't do which we do push towards climate action and more sustainable energy resources that they feel that you have to put up an aggressive front to counteract that. And just reading the article that was published, well, that was released from the university and mentioned in our letter, it's just, we saw that, we saw these polarizing arguments, and we want to show that you can use a different language and actually have productive conversations rather than just screaming matches, which we're seeing over media right now. And that's, that because that's, that really kind of ticked Sky and myself off, is that nothing was being done, we're just screaming at each other. And that's why, <clears throat> excuse me, that's why we wanted to introduce using words and have words have meaning into this letter. Yeah. Sky, did you want to? Yeah, I, I like with that, um, we're like with this whole letter, we're just trying to bring something that was positive and something that was um, that promotes critical thinking and discussion um, with that. And like to bring out, like, you know, we need to watch what we say because words, like Daniel said, it, some words can be pretty loaded and bring contention. And like, that's not going to get us anywhere. It's, you know, coming from all sides and taking a look at a problem that we have and coming up with solutions rather than just pointing fingers. 
And that's we have a really cool story because we I had a a, a medical professional, a medical doctor, uh, state to me, uh, oil is dead. We need to divest and reinvest in renewables. And this is when we were sending our letter out, and I was like, wow, okay. He's like, but I will read your letter. And I think because we were students and he was just giving us a little tap on the head and just saying, okay, I'll read this letter, and then it's not going to change my opinion. But he came back to me saying, wow, you made me critically think about this issue. And then he told me that I would should stop pursuing a master's in geology and become a political writer. But (laughs) that was amazing that we were able to see this one individual using these negative terminologies saying oil is dead. And he comes back to the table and was flabbergasted for lack of a better term and that he needs to think about it. And I think that was the purpose of the letter too. We, really we tried our best to stay neutral and to stay with neutral wording to actually have that outcome of a one person critically think about these issues that are happening to Canada right now. And that was just really cool. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. Yeah. So, and what about, did you, did you get a response from the PMO? Prime minister's office? Uh, no, we haven't need, we've been letting this letter uh, still circulate because we, we were gonna. We had a a signing ceremony in Calgary not too long ago with Students for Canada, and had that uh, broadcasted on a couple different media platforms. And before then, we had around I think 500 signatures. But then after that news release, we shot up 2,000 within a day, I believe. Yeah, and now it went up really fast. Today we're at 3,000 signatures. So we're just still accumulating more signatures because we're, what we're, we're going to do is uh, print out or, tie, or write out all the signatures from 3,000 or more people because we want more signatures and physically mail that to okay. the prime minister and actually have that as a document, not just a quick click of the button. And that's mm-hmm. what we think would be more powerful and actually have a response. Because how can you ignore a stack of paper mailed to you where it's very easy to just ignore a simple email? Yeah, well, that's excellent. Okay, so I didn't even realize that it wasn't, uh, that it hasn't been sent. So fantastic. Guys, I want to thank you very much for joining me today. Um, for our listeners who want to sign up, can you give us that information again, where they can find you on the website and how they can add their signature to this letter before it goes out? Yeah, uh, so it's studentsforcanada.ca. So www.studentsforcanada.ca is where you can find a letter and be able to add your support to it as well. And like, just wanted to add with Daniel um, there, uh, we have lots of academics students, researchers, specialists, and professionals from across Canada who've signed this letter. And so it's, it just shows we're, we're not alone. Um, like we have biologists, we have climate change scientists, earth scientists, if, um, engineers and geoscientists within the petroleum industry within, and professionals in the renewable industry and within the research industry too as well. Um, that are all coming together with this. And so, yeah, we're just making a big invitation for everyone just to continue to support that. 
and we're collecting all signatures, not just students, because that's yeah. a couple of questions that we had before. It's like, oh, I'd sign this, but I'm not a student. The signatures that 3,000 plus signatures we have are all those that Sky has stated. And then we have, we do have hundreds of students signing it from the West Coast to the East Coast. So uh, University of Victoria to uh, out in St. John's. So it's, it's, it's gaining traction and it's really awesome to see that people are excited about this new optimistic neutral ground letter that people can stand behind. Be like, yes, oil and gas industries do support renewable and climate action. And we can have both oil and gas and climate action together here in Canada. All right. Well, hopefully you'll have a few of uh, our Weld Course Supplies CAODC podcast listeners uh, signing on. So, guys, thank you very much for joining me. Really appreciate it, and uh, best of luck in in moving forward with your work. Thank you so much, Sean, for having us, too. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. WealthCore is proud to support those who are working hard to keep our country running. Proud to be a Canadian-owned welding filler metal supply company in a country that has the highest environmental and human rights standards in the world. WealthCore supports ethical oil. WealthCore supports the Canadian oil and gas sector. The world needs ethical oil. The world needs Canadian oil. Let WeldCore Supplies help you make that happen. Welcome back. Joining us now on the WeldCore Supplies CAODC podcast is Stuart Muir, Executive Director of ResourceWorks, a BC organization that communicates the importance of resource sectors and demonstrates how responsible development creates jobs and incomes, both directly and indirectly, while maintaining a clean and healthy environment. Stuart joins us today to talk about a new initiative called the Task Force for Real Jobs, Real Recovery which CAODC has joined as a supporter. Welcome, Stuart. How are you today? Pretty good, John. Thanks for that nice introduction. Appreciate it. So the task force is a very important initiative right now. Was there an inciting moment that led to the idea, or how did it come about? Yeah, that's a good question, because it it was a bit of a process. And just to background it a little bit, you you mentioned the the fact that ResourceWorks is a BC organization, and... Right now, I'm talking to you from Victoria, and we have been working here in BC for a number of years, but this is the, an opportunity for us to go to the national level. And I think the, the time is right to take the ideas, ideas we've developed, which have been Western in nature, and bring them to the whole country because we're, we're in this crisis, unprecedented economic uh, crisis, and we need ideas wherever they come from. So. My board was able to say, when I brought the idea forward, that we could do something in the national space, uh, they said, go for it, because we knew that the time was right. You know, BC and Alberta, too, have been subjected to an unusual amount of stress when it comes to social license and uh, regulatory processes and, you know, getting things built in the last few years. It's taken the length A friend pointed out to me of two world wars to get the Trans Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion process to where it is today, and it's not even finished. Um, You know, the the amount of time, our regulatory processes, politicization. So when it came, you know, into March, and there we all were at home in the early stages of COVID lockdown, 
we we begin to think, okay, this thing, we don't know where it's going, but it's obviously got implications for, you know, economic matters. What can we do? One thing we started out through the pandemic was a series of Zoom calls. I hate the term webinar, but, you know, we wanted to bring people together to provide some ideas and content. So we had a lot of people every week meeting and talking about ideas. We had some some brilliant minds that I invited to come out and, and share ideas. So, you know, there were some creative thought processes cooking as early as the end of March, whereupon we said, you know, we need to just, just of the situation. So we brought in uh, a policy analyst who's worked with us before, Karen Graham, who's got a lot of experience with the Vancouver Board of Trade and BC Business Council, done a lot of work in cross-border trade. And we said, Karen, could you just, you know, take a deeper dive into this and come back with, you know, just a just a scope, not really the details, but a scope of what we think we need to do. And so Karen did that work and came back with, with a, a report that we put on the ResourceWorks, which is resourceworks.com website. Um, in early, early May, May the 5th, we published that. It was called Team Canada for the Rebuild. And I think that title says a little, little bit of what we were trying to convey there, that, you know, you think back to the era when it seemed like a few times a year, there'd be a big Team Canada trade delegation going off, usually to Asia, but also other places. We'd have a prime minister there, we'd have ministers, we'd have, you know, the, the, the titans of business would be on these trade. I haven't seen that for a while. You know, remember when it was a focus? That was a big deal. So just using that term Team Canada to maybe uh, trigger the, the memory many of us will have of, of that era when we, we realized that government and industry needed to come together. And, uh, and in this case, it's for the rebuild. So from behind the eight ball, what do we do? We had a number of recommendations. I won't get into them all. If you go to the website uh, under the research uh, uh, tab, you, you can see it for yourself. But the one thing I'd pull out of this is that, that Karen determined that there should be a task force approach of you know, bringing together disparate minds to, to have a piece of work in a short time resulting in some you know, outcome. That's, that's what I would define, I guess, as a task force. And, and so at that point, I really had to start thinking, what do we need to do in order to bring this about? So that started a number of conversations. Uh, we began to <clears throat> talk to organizations like your, your, your own what the interest level was. It turned out that the work we've done over the last seven years since we started ResourceWorks to, to do something that's honest and credible, um, that, that, that builds and, and gets away from the polarizations and the hot arguments, um, it, it, it amounted to something that people recognized and said, okay, Stu, if, if you want to do this, um, we're, we're there for you. So at this point in time, two months or maybe 10 weeks after we started that process, we've now got a coalition of about 30 organizations in oil and gas and mining, in forestry, in manufacturing. We have the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Um, and, you know, there's there's a lot in that. So, John, you asked for the backstory. I, I think that's really the substance of it. And, and we, uh, I guess the last thing I would say is we generated a plan to, to do the work. Um, we, we knew that time, a work plan that was to come to a conclusion. And, and I hope we can talk about that today. Um, and, and now we're well underway. Well, timing is, is right for sure. Um, for those of us who don't live in BC, could you give us a bit of an update as to 
how things are going in BC right now economically? Yeah, the, the BC picture, I think, often is cushioned by real estate, which is a big driver. So we have often the ability to have a consumer-led recovery. People can tap their, you know, housing equity, and and that lets us ride through. Plus, we have a, a degree of of uh, uh, direct investment from residents from abroad who who come here, and they're not really part of the local economy until they get here, but they derive their, their income from you know other sources. So that kind of a cushion for BC that's I guess enjoyable to have, but it, it's a bit distanced from the reality of actually most of the working folk who live in BC because they don't have um, you know uh, factories that they own in some other country. They don't have a uh, $4 million West Side bungalow um, that they, they just make or probably less than, well, less than Albertans make. You know, we don't have high incomes in BC uh, or in Vancouver for that matter, despite all the bright lights. Um, so when you get down to it and you strip away some of those externalities um, as, as now, uh, you can have a kind of a, a hard landing. Um, there was actually a poll out on the day we speak today from uh, a well-respected pollster um, in in BC, they're looking more at, at the business attitudes. Uh, what are people feeling? There's a really stress that, yeah, okay, the, all these wage supports that we've got have been beneficial, but there's a number of factors that are that are going to be needed in the recovery phase. We need less red tape. We need regulatory processes that don't stop things from happening. They, you know, they need to be enabling processes. We need to be able to attract investment, and then taxes and you know, fees, permit costs, that kind of thing. Th those those are the areas that uh, we we know for sure now because of this poll are are creating hardship for the, the investment side and business side. Um, so I think that's emerging as a reality in the BC context. So if it's happening that here way, you know, if it's happening here that way. Um, well, of course, it's happening like that elsewhere in Canada, and I think it's a kind of a barometer moment. Um, and just the last thing I'd say about BC, what's exceptional about BC is that the, the West Coast is the barrier or the enabler to market access for everything from Manitoba West. And, I mean, you could say the rest of the country too, but in a very direct way, whether you're a farmer or an oil and gas producer, mining, uh, you've got to get your goods to market, forestry as well, and the ports of Prince Rupert and Vancouver are absolutely key to that happening. And if and if we're not able to get things through those ports, whether it's by tanker, by cargo ship, by container ship, then um, we don't have a Canadian economy. So BC is not just a province that's got its issues. BC is the West. It's the heart of success for the West. That's a great point. From an outside perspective, there seems to be a divide in BC between those in the lower mainland and those in the rest of the province when it comes to understanding and accepting uh, resource industries. Uh, how would you describe the urban versus rural viewpoint there? And, and do you think this type of dichotomy extends across the country in general? Or Yeah, I, I think it's it's increased over the years. You know, it, it could be observed a long time ago, but I think in recent years, social demographic cultural changes uh, for one thing of course all of us can work wherever we we might be now if that work involves you know engaging with others so we can all 
obviously do that anywhere. And that's allowed people to work right now in the pandemic. It's great. People are working from their, their cottages. They're, they're, they're going to their family somewhere else and, and seeing their family and being able to do their job. That's great. Um, but, but I think in terms of the rural-urban divide, what it's meant is that a lot of communities that traditionally are very strong on the, the resource economy and the people who live in them um, know that because they get their, their paycheck from the local mine. You know, the, the smaller communities uh, especially, they, they are seeing more people coming in who can, can work there with their colleagues elsewhere. They're not really connected to the local economy. They may not feel an emotional stake in it. They may even be swayed by propositions that, hey, we don't, you know, you're here with your laptop, you're, you're working for Hollywood North editing videos or something, um, and, and those, those trucks on the road are just a, an irritation to you because you want to get to the store faster. So maybe you could sign that petition to stop the mine from being built, and people will do that. I'm seeing a lot of that. So, um, you know, I don't want to be um, negative about those people. It's important work they're doing. They're earning a living. They're buying groceries or paying their rent. They're paying taxes. It's great. It's it's a wonderful future to think that you can go and live in a beautiful place that you love that's not in a city and, and do your work. So bravo, more of that. But at the same time, if we see local processes that you know are, are just getting more difficult because of this, um, then that's something I think we need to address. Uh, address it through education and facts and, and not through sort of these high-pitched emotional appeals to you know if you do that you're gonna you're gonna you know destroy the planet well really um so i think this is a challenge that comes to rest on industry the the rural urban divide uh is is uh, is a real thing and um it's it's tough to pin down but yeah um it's it's a great great area to be talking about we could do a whole show on that i think john well especially now that we're i mean probably in the middle of this pandemic that has done substantial economic damage to uh, our country and of course it comes at a time when many Canadians including several leaders which is imperative here um, seem to be looking beyond the value of these industries that have essentially uh, built our country so you know great timing for the task force what are, are some of your goals as a group yeah so the, the goals are to be influential at the national federal government scale and this is something that until now, the, the, the natural resource industry has has not been that effective in. I think what we have is a kind of balkanization of interests where if you're in this subsector, uh, you you have your interests. You have a list of things that you, you hope government could do to help you or get out of your way, and, and you have your lobbying activities to pursue that, which is, of course, totally rational what you should be doing, uh, whether you're in you know, forestry or forest subsectors or oil and gas if you're in drilling if you're in um, if you're in uh, pipelines or downstream um, of course this advocacy is needed but I think what what uh, the missing piece has been is how do we unify on the things that aren't sort of the technical requirements of us doing our businesses but rather the high level things of how we're contributing to society how our, our workforce employees are um, seeking to have a, a better life for themselves and making sure that we can be part of that success. So I think uh, by coming together as natural resources, we can do, do more. So it's you know on the record, for the purposes of our Real Jobs, Real Recovery Coalition, we're calling natural resources oil and gas, mining, and forestry, but also the activities that support them, 
primarily construction and manufacturing. And that's why we've got the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters uh, Association in this group. It's why we've got the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. It's people who recognize. Um, now, just one thing I'll say is some, some listeners might be thinking, well, wait a minute, he, doesn't he know about agriculture? Well, absolutely, agriculture is a, is a natural resource area, and it's one that in future I, I would like to develop. The thing is, it's been such a big area, a sprawling thing. So in our first years, we, we've we tried to build on you know a, a starting point, the, the industries I've named. And I think in future, I've actually talking to someone in Saskatchewan yesterday and said, you really should be looking at agriculture. And I think it's incredible what's happening in that space, but it's also incredibly challenged because they do have, um, they're paying carbon taxes as farmers that can be crippling, which I think the federal government, although I think there's a lot of merit in, in carbon pricing and having a good policy, if you're adding costs at the point of origin, that really just trickles down. If you don't have mechanisms, ultimately, of course, the consumer is paying more for a loaf of bread. Do you want that? Is that the goal of this? Um, for people to consume less bread? I don't think so. It's it's to produce you know fewer emissions. So how are we making sure? So uh, the farmers and the ranchers, I, I hope we'll be able to get into conversations with later. That'll make us stronger when we find our, our unifying thing. So it's it's kind of going upward. It's elevating into the things that, that do unify us. And there's a, there's a bunch of issues that, that are in there. So we're talking about a task force for real jobs, real recovery. There is another task force out there right now called the Task Force for a Resilient Recovery that's closely associated with the International Institute for Sustainable Development and uh, Corporate Knights, among other groups. Um, they are also looking to provide recommendations for a recovery uh, to the Canadian government. Now, do you have any background on them? Can you tell us a little bit about that group? Yeah, as we were designing our task force, we started to notice there were some other things going on, and the resilient recovery people uh, you, you mentioned are not the only ones that we saw. There's there's uh, different environmental groups that are saying this is a, a, an opportunity to get off fossil fuels. Um, the logic on that is is frankly a little bit lost on me, um, but but we've got probably four or five different uh, vehicles like that that are coming forward, and that's. That's what uh, 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 processes like this allow. So I'm glad that others are marshalling their ideas, and I wanted to ensure in doing this, as we realized there was a you know a bigger role in diversification of viewpoints, that the spectrum of ideas that would be considered by government would be uh, correct to the realities of Canada. And you know I think uh, the, if if you're if your number one goal is to eliminate fossil fuels from the Canadian economy, um, that's a, a narrow part of the spectrum of ideas that could be advanced. If you're you're talking about um, simply sustainability, that's a good thing. We we need sustainable industries. But if you're not talking about jobs and economic recovery, then you're you're going to be missing a big part of things. So. Um, I, I think that's why we took off so quickly because uh, we weren't alone in realizing that the the spectrum wasn't wide enough. So, you know, we're not here to to add to the polarization that, is, that has been you know crippling for quality public discourse. We're we're just here to 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 widen the the spectrum of things that can be talked about intelligently by well intended and and uh, well well uh, positioned people. 
You mentioned the polarization, and it's interesting to me because it seems to be that there's a lot of common ground when it comes to the environment in, in what you know, each of our groups uh, are doing. But I, you know, I'm wondering why it's so difficult for those who support resource industries and those who have a vision for what they call a 21st century clean economy to work together. I mean, uh, you know, and you travel around the world, you yeah. talk to people from all of these areas. What, uh, can you give us some thoughts on why it's so polarized? And because there's, there just seems to be so much common ground when it comes to, especially environmental stewardship. Oh, sure. And, you know, John, we did a poll early on back in probably 2014 or so uh, when we were starting ResourceWorks. We wanted to get a, you know, a sense of things. And everyone calls himself an environmentalist. You know, if you put that question in a poll, are you an environmentalist? Like 95% of people will say, yes, I'm an environmentalist. Now, obviously, that is going to mean different things to different people, but everyone has that value. And so when you when you start from people's core values and you build on that, I think that's different than than starting from, you know, do you support or oppose that project? Because that that immediately triggers polarization and and sort of uh, a resort to to interests. So, you know, what are your interests here? Um, but I think values are more personally felt. They they are in the range of emotion, and it's it's emotion that I think has driven a lot of the, the conflict because when when it comes to um, say opposition to projects the the emotion of do you want your environment to be damaged do you do you want this uh, beautiful species that that we think is challenged in its ecosystem to be rendered extinct you know do you or don't you well of course i don't want that to happen um, who would want that to happen? And I, I think this has led to a sort of very easy marketing plan, if you will, for those who seek to oppose a project. They just sort of reach for the emotion, and and it's very easy to build uh, the apparent evidence of public opposition to something. You know, signatures on a petition, or um, you know, uh, clicks on a, a, a you know social media artifact of some kind or other, and. And, and comments in Facebook, and all of a sudden you got a raging campaign on your side when really it's got very little to do with the values that all those people themselves hold because they want to have a roof over their homes. They want to have a pension check in the mail or uh, a job to go to. They want their grandchildren to the other side of the country because the parent has become unemployed here and has to go to Toronto to work. Uh, they, they want those things. Um, and so we share those values, and I, I think a lot of the work we try to do is try to, you know, start with the values, and you know, it can differ. You can get into, you know, the sort of microscopic values germane to one you know, geographic area or issue, but broadly, these values are ones held by by Canadians. We want a, a clean environment. We want a healthy living as people. Uh, we we want to be able to hand the planet over to the next generation in good shape. Um, those are those are good values, the right values, and we all have them. So if our listeners want more information on the task force, or, or maybe you can tell us what uh, sort of the next month is, is uh, what's on the uh, schedule for the task force. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you the work plan here. So what we set out to do, uh, the first thing was to get the coalition established. So um, we still have a couple of members coming in. We're going to have a little news to announce, uh, hopefully later today, finalizing. Um, one, one of the things we actually haven't even talked about is the the breadth of it. It's not just that it's from coast to coast to coast. It's that it is inclusive of industry. We have unions representing workers directly. We have 
First Nations organizations, and we have local communities. We have two mayors. We have one former premier, a former premier of Northwest Territories. Um, and, and so we've we've sought to be highly representative. We have, uh, you know, it's, it can be hard to get go back into something you're doing because of the, you know, if you're in the West especially, we don't necessarily have the, the networks that people do if they're, say, in Ontario or, or in Montreal. Um, but nevertheless, we have been able to work with the Boilermakers uh, of Quebec, and the the leader of, of that union has come into our advisory panel, and and also we we've, we brought in the support of the building trades of Quebec, you know, very significant organization, and it's clear that they want to be part of building things in in the real recovery. The the fact that we were able to bring in First Nations, I think, speaks to the authenticity of the work. I've spent a lot of time over the years going out to meet leaders who are connecting Indigenous aspirations with economic opportunities, especially in resources all over the country. Um, you know, I think there's. I, I'm a former journalist, John, so I I'm not I'm not a media basher. Oh, the media isn't covering it right. I really don't believe that that's. Uh, uh, a reflection of the reality of how journalists do their jobs. You know, they're working people too. It, it's up to us to help them. But I, but I do think that there is sort of a broad media perception that First Nations um, aren't on board with resource development. We saw this week there's an incredible announcement from the Fort McKay First Nation. They want to be a developer of an oil sands mine. This is phenomenal. Um, it's it's totally contrary to the media picture, and therefore the impression that a lot of Canadians have that Indigenous peoples are against resource development. They're for resource development. We know they are. And one of the reasons is that they're on the land base in ways that the majority of Canadians dwelling within 100 miles of the U.S. border in a bunch of big cities uh, have no concept of. They're out there 365 days a year in places like B.C., where the mountainous territory has dictated culture uh, we have 200 First Nations and almost, I think, as many First Nations languages, often very, very small communities. They're on the other side of a mountain somewhere. There may not be a highway or even much of a road. Um, they they want to live well. They have a, a duty to carry on their, their ancestors' desires for them that they experience. They have a duty to restore their language and recover their people. We have a, you know, a past that that Canadians are still reckoning with. We have a duty to support the things that they want to do. You know, the days of saying, here, I've got a solution for you are behind us, and they have to stay always behind us. It's it's for First Nations people to to, to determine what, what it is. And they're, they're clearly determining that they want to have prosperity because it's the way out of poverty. You've got the First Nation, you've got me started on it, so if you don't mind, John, I'll keep going. You know, you know, I think particularly like like women, First Nations women in so many communities that we've been working in, they don't have a driver's license, let alone a car. They're they're at home, uh, they're with the kids. Maybe they don't have internet. They're they're really, um, and and for those who choose that, you know, they there are those who choose. They want to they want to have a, a lifestyle that is like their ancient ancestors had, and that's their their great freedom to pursue that. But there are those who are in a situation, like I've described, who they're terribly, and imagine they get a job working at a, a camp as a cook, or uh, they, they start to acquire technical certification and, and, and competencies and get the hours, and then all of a sudden they're, they're moving into something that's uh, higher paying. It changes their lives. 
I've, I've just had so, so many uh, encounters with people. Um, blows your mind that we, we can do this. We can change those lives. We have the, the power to do it by unleashing resources and we're not doing it. Like what's, what's wrong with that picture? Yeah, agreed. And it's and, and like you say, they've uh, just giving them the choice. Um, you know, I mean, if they want the traditional lifestyle, then fantastic. And if they'd like something else, then they should have that opportunity as well. And and I think that you know, I would agree with you, Stuart. I think that that story is getting out there now more than ever, and and in part uh, because of the work that you and your group are doing in, in uh, presenting the, the, the other side and, and you're doing a terrific job and there are many articles now on, on just uh, you know how much many First Nations support uh, resource industries, not just oil and gas but all of them and, and they rely on them for uh, the development and uh, you know, maintenance of their communities. So uh, it's, uh, it's a good news story for sure and that's one that uh, it's great to, to see a lot more of. Well, so thank you, Stuart, for your time. I'm not going to keep you much longer here. What can our listeners do if they want to be a part of this task force or if they just want to stay up to date on what you guys are doing? What can they, uh, what can they do? Yeah, a couple of real easy things. Check out the website. It's realrecovery.ca. We've got a Twitter feed. It's uh, Real CDN Recovery. And we're putting out, uh, as of today, uh, there's going to be a daily quote from one of our advisory council members. We've got 20 uh, individuals of, of high repute and accomplishment, um, and we've we've asked them what they think on issues, and we're going to be sharing their words in, in bite-sized pieces over the day. So if you if you get into their Twitter and you you like it or retweet it, comment on it, anything anything you like, that that will make a difference because uh, you know we're starting. We don't have a lot of followers on that account because it's new, and and if you want to get noticed in social media, you you've got to build followers and build interaction. So that's a meaningful difference that anyone without. Uh, making much of an effort at all without uh, spending a, a penny can can actually really help us. So I'd appreciate that. And the second phase, so th the first phase we did this week was the launch to say we're doing the work. The second phase is to, once we complete the work, to, to uh, bring it to the federal decision makers. And we'll be certainly coming back uh, to, to, to the drillers to, to ask you to share that with your, your members and Anything that you thumbs out of that, um, I hope to make a trip or two to Ottawa if travel conditions are, are going to allow there to be meetings in person and personally bring it to the Prime Minister's office and the relevant ministers and, and make sure they, 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 they know what we're doing and the importance of it. And you know what, I think, I think there is a, a sense now that we're feeling out of Ottawa that they, they realize they do need this help. So I think we can be part of a, a really positive, constructive conversation all the way. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Stuart. Have a great day. Thanks, John. Well, that's it for another edition of the Weldcore Supplies CAODC podcast. We would like to thank our guests this month, Dan Baker, Sky Libert, and Stuart Muir. We would also like to thank our sponsor, Weldcore Supplies, the filler metal experts. And of course, we'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any suggestions for guests you'd like to see, please send us a note to communications at caodc.ca. And if you like what you hear, please give us a like or share. I hope you have a great month in the sun, and we will be back again in August. So until then, keep it turning to the right.